Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Father, we ask that as we hear the words of Jesus, they would speak to us and find ready listeners. Open our hearts to your word now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Several weeks ago, I was at a museum looking at the paintings on the wall and trying to take an interest, trying to be a cultured person. And I was curious about all the details in a painting, all the, the, the little motifs and, and pictures in the corners of the image. And so I did the natural thing that you do when you want to dig into the details. I, I took out my phone and I snapped a picture of it, and then I looked at the picture, and I pinched and zoomed so that I could study the details of the painting. Now, the painting was still physically there, and I still physically had legs. In the olden days, I might have walked towards the painting to inspect those details, but not anymore. Now, we just do this thing with our phones and document it and pinch and zoom. I had to laugh at myself as one of those people sometimes that, that looks around and, and says, oh, the problem these days with kids and their phones, as this old man snapped photos in order to see what was right in front of his eyes. And then I had a second thought, which was, hey, this pinching and zooming thing, this is actually a good metaphor for how a lot of people see prophecy in the Bible. In his book, uh, The Return of Christ, G.C. Burkauer has a term he uses for this common approach to the interpretation of prophecy. He calls it repertorial eschatology. It's that practice of looking at the minute details of the Bible's prophetic utterances and then identifying which headlines or which historic events can be plugged into those sentences or phrases or words, or sometimes it seems syllables, in order to decipher and interpret them. Reportorial eschatology. I like it, but I'm going to suggest a substitute more in keeping with our moment, pinch and zoom prophecy. I think we read prophecy all too often the way we study images on our phones. It's become second nature, this gesture. I sometimes catch myself doing it to printed photos, trying to enlarge them and make them bigger. And we do it constantly when we're reading scripture as well. We zoom in minutely to look at the details. But as we'll see, this isn't the right way to interpret prophecy in Scripture, in fact, it tends to ignore the way that Jesus and the apostles actually interpret 
prophecy of the Old Testament. But hold that thought. We're going to come back to that. First, we need to think about the immediate moment where Jesus speaks the words that we've just read, the words concerning the temple and the lesson that he's trying to teach to his apostles. The lesson that despite appearances, the permanent things are not the things you can touch. The permanent things are not the things you can touch. We're going to talk about that first. Then we'll come back to prophecy and we'll find out that the ultimate purpose of prophecy is not actually prediction. It's something more like preparation. But first, let's join Jesus in the temple precincts. Our text opens with uh, words that you could read a lot into given the ground that we've covered with Jesus already. Uh, Jesus left the temple. Jesus has finished what he has to say. He's given his woes. He's spoken his condemnation. He's turning and he's leaving. And then Matthew says the disciples call his attention to the buildings of the temple, which is an odd thing to do given the fact that they've been doing all of this in the shadow of those buildings already. But it makes a kind of sense. right? If you think about this whole episode in Matthew's Gospel, beginning with the triumphal entry in this sort of final week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, if you think about what it is Jesus is doing in Jerusalem, what it is Jesus is doing when he goes to the temple, you might think of Jesus' time in the city of peace as a sort of inspection, as a sort of assessment. Jesus taking the measure of the state of the temple. Like the Levitical system, the old covenant order that the temple represents, Jesus has weighed it and he's found it wanting. He has declared that it is corrupt. In chapter 23, thanks to Pastor Dan, we were introduced to all the woes that Jesus pronounces, the words of condemnation. You might think of this text, the beginning of chapter 24, as the verdict. And the verdict is destruction. Or to put it in a slightly rhymier way, uh, the state of the temple will dictate the fate of the temple. The state of the temple will dictate the fate of the temple. The state of the temple is corruption. And so Jesus says the fate of the temple is destruction. Because it is utterly corrupted, the temple will be utterly thrown down and destroyed. And this is going to bring an end not only to the physical structure, but to everything that it stood for. Like the end of the sign will mean the end of the thing that it signified. Now, when we study the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we often talk about the things that don't carry over, the discontinuities, like why things that happened in the Old Testament stop happening in the New Testament. And oftentimes, the reason for that discontinuation is fulfillment. Right? Things in the Old Covenant that pointed forward to Jesus, once Jesus is here, have served their purpose. So they go away, they pass away, but not for some bad reason. More like your job is done, well done, we don't need you anymore because the thing you were pointing to is now here. 
But not every aspect of that change, of that passing away, is positive like that. The author of Hebrews brings out the fact that part of the reason why the old order passed away was its own inadequacy, its own failure. And here, Jesus is highlighting that theme, the shortcomings of what went before, the failure, the corruption of what went before has led to this judgment. The old way could promise, but it could not fulfill. It could picture, it could symbolize, but it could not deliver on the things that it pictured. Now this matters, this transition that comes with the destruction of the temple and all that the temple stands for. Like it speaks to us even now. When the old order passes away, you shouldn't keep putting your trust in those things, as if the new had not come. There needs to be a change in our faith, in our confidence, once God has done this new thing and has closed the chapter on the old. Also, when that old order passes away, when that temple is thrown down, Jesus wants his followers to know that they shouldn't despair as if the destruction of the temple signals the failure of God's plan, when in fact it is the fulfillment of God's plan. Because that judgment is part of the work that God is doing. So, as I said, the Olivet Discourse, it's different from the discourses that have gone before. As Dan pointed out, what we covered in the woes, that's the last public teaching utterance of Jesus now what we're going to get is a little bit of behind-the-scenes conversation. Jesus teaching the disciples in response to the question they ask immediately after he pronounces the destruction of the temple. Because everything that follows flows from the question they ask, it's important for us to think about those men and where they're at in this moment, like their mindset. So, even after Jesus has pronounced his condemnation of the physical temple and everything that it stands for, what the disciples do at the beginning of Matthew 24 suggests that they are still in awe of these things. Like Matthew summarizes what the disciples say. He writes, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now, you have to read into that a little bit because it's not like Jesus had missed them, right? The temple is, is very visible. As they travel between Olivet, uh, the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, uh, when you're on the Mount of Olives, you have a great vista view of the Temple Mount. So this isn't a question of, of wayfinding. It's not a question of Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed, but look, the temple. Right? They're calling his attention to the temple for a different reason. Uh, Luke, in his parallel passage in Luke 21, describes this scene. He summarizes as well, but he adds more detail. He says, some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. And then Mark, in Mark 13, he gives us their actual words. Look, teacher, they say, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. When you take that together you can get a, a sense of the conversation. Jesus is saying something like, hey, all of this is going to be destroyed, 
in response to them saying, look at how great all of this is. Like he's speaking to their awe at what they see. And Jesus makes it clear, kind of bluntly, that this thing that you're so impressed with will be destroyed. It'll be thrown down, not one stone on top of another. Now, little side note here. In John's Gospel, you may recall at the beginning of John's Gospel, in John chapter 2, Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. He says in John 2, verse 21, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And that utterance ends up being repeated at Jesus' trial. We're going to see this again in Matthew 26. His accusers level this charge against him. They claim that he has said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And then in Mark's gospel, he gives that same charge. He words it like this. I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. John points out in his account that people who heard this and reported it did not understand the significance of what Jesus was talking about. John says Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body so that the three days was really significant. And that when he died, and after three days rose again, the disciples remembered that he had said this, realized what he was talking about, and that realization of fulfillment, right, there had been a kind of prophetic utterance, and now it's been fulfilled, that that fulfillment had filled them with belief, had given them confidence in believing. All that to say, in our text, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the physical temple, but sometimes when he talks about the destruction of the temple, he's talking about himself, the temple of his body. And throughout this way of speaking, those two themes, the physical temple and the spiritual temple, are intertwined. They're enmeshed with one another, and that's going to be important for us to remember. Now, the point here is not going to be that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. But rather, the point is that as paradoxical as it is for us as embodied physical human beings, what is permanent is what is spiritual. What is physical is impermanent. What is physical will pass away. So put your faith in the permanent things. Put your faith in what will not pass away. The faith of the disciples at this moment is really clear. When they hear what Jesus says, their response demonstrates their faith. Despite the fact that they are in awe of these impressive buildings and everything they represent, when Jesus says it's going to be thrown down, they don't argue with him. They don't express skepticism. Instead, they pose the question that's going to drive the Olivet Discourse. When will these things be? They ask. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And again, in that reaction, there's something we can learn. The way they respond to Jesus's teaching here is really instructive. 
Right? They are being called to put their faith in what is spiritual, not what is physical. And yes, that is difficult. In fact, calling it difficult is an understatement. I mean, it's a hard, it's a trying, it's a sometimes ludicrous thing. Impossible. This call to like an otherworldliness. To put your trust and confidence in things that you cannot see and cannot touch. And not to put it in the things that are tangible, in the things that are real. That's a very difficult call. Yet Jesus says, not only are these physical things unreliable and corrupt and subject to passing away, but their very reality, their very concreteness depends on their relationship to the spiritual things that you think are somehow unreal because you cannot see them and you cannot touch them. But the disciples, when they hear about this destruction, they don't challenge it. They believe in the word that Jesus is speaking. Whatever skepticism they might have had before, that skepticism is over. They only have one question now, and that question is, when is this going to happen? When will these things take place? Now, most people, when they hear that trouble is coming, when they hear that destruction is on the horizon, the natural question to ask is something like, how much destruction are we talking about? How bad are things going to be? Plutarch, in his book, The Ways of the Spartans, says the Spartans aren't like most people. When the Spartans hear trouble is coming, they react differently. He says, the Spartans do not ask how many are the enemy, but where are they? So they don't ask how many people are coming to get us. They ask, where are the people who are coming to get us so we can go get them? It's a different way of seeing things. And in the same spirit, when the disciples hear that all this will be destroyed, their only question is, when? When? Tell us when these things will take place. Jesus is asking his disciples to trust in him. One man who walks with them, someone they know, and to put their faith in him over the noble stones and the noble offerings that take place in the temple. To put their trust in him over the establishment, over the authority, over the grandeur and the wealth and the power and the ritual that they have witnessed all their lives. And he says, all of that is going away. Trust in me instead. In the same way that in the Old Testament, those Old Testament sacraments, all those signs and seals and their complexity and their mystery in the New Testament give way to simpler and clearer signs. There is a transition, as it were, from this physical temple to a spiritual temple, from the physical kingdom to the spiritual kingdom. And Christ calls his people into that reality, and these disciples answer by saying, when? When will these things take place? Consider this. By the end of the week that we're witnessing here, it will seem as if Jesus' words are exactly wrong. 
Jesus says, all of this will pass away. Put your trust in me. But after the crucifixion for three days, it's going to look as if Jesus has passed away and all of this is still standing. As if the ones he condemned, the ones he challenged have had the final word. And in this moment, what Jesus is telling his followers is, that's not the way it is. It's exactly the other way around. All of that is impermanent. All of that will pass away. And this is what matters. This is what is permanent. Throughout your life, day by day, the world's power and its grandeur, its solidity, its history, all proclaim to you that your faith in Jesus is misguided. You're putting your trust in a temple that science and reason and common sense have long since thrown down. When the world looks at Christianity, it says there's not one stone still standing on another, and you'd be a fool to put your trust in those promises. And yet here's Jesus, still standing, pointing to the monuments and the fortresses and the cathedrals of this world and telling you that none of them will endure, that none of that will last, that only what is in him will endure. Believe him when he says it. Now let's go back to prophecy. Because what Jesus is going to do throughout the course of the Olivet Discourse is he's going to speak in prophetic mode. And the ultimate purpose of prophecy in Scripture is not prediction, it's preparation. There's this hilarious trope in television uh, it always fascinates me, but whenever you're watching uh, cop shows and they have surveillance footage, you know, there's a, a, a criminal who can be seen on the image, or there's a car zooming past. They're like, wait, stop the footage. I want to see that license plate. They stop this grainy black and white footage, and then the detective says, uh, make that bigger. And they go in, and they go in, and they go in, and all you can see are these blobs and pixels. And then they say, enhance that. And suddenly, all the pixels are clear, and you can read the license plate. And it turns out that no matter how low quality, low resolution any image is, if you zoom in and just enhance it, you can see what's actually there. Now, that's another approach to this problem of the way that we often come at prophecy. Uh, so the pinch and zoom prophecy, I'm going to point out two, two aspects of this error. So the first one is we act as if God has given us in prophecy a giant high-res image, and that the key to interpreting it is to zoom in as far as possible in order to see clearly all of the little details to match this sentence and that phrase and that word to whatever historical event we think would fulfill it. But there's another aspect to it, because sometimes when you zoom in on prophecy, things become a little fuzzy and a little vague. Sometimes when you read prophecy, it's not so clear exactly what is referring to what, and that's when it's really helpful when you can just enhance the image. Now, if you know this, the way that a computer, artificial intelligence, enhances an image, it takes the actual data that's there 
It studies the gaps, what's not there, and then it extrapolates or interpolates what would connect those things. Now, that act of interpolation is what a regular person would call guessing. Guessing. The computer guesses what should be in those gaps and then supplies those things. So the high-res, restored, interpolated image is not a picture of reality. It's a detailed picture of the guesswork that has gone into filling the gaps. That, too, is very characteristic of our approach to prophecy, right? When there are gaps in what Scripture says, we interpolate, we guess what needs to go into the gaps in order for it all to make sense. And let's just say some guesses are better than others. Right? Conservative guesses tend to be better than uh, more specific ones. I'm looking at you, dispensationalism. But regardless of your guesswork, all your guesses are still guesses. They don't become God's word because it looks to you like they fit. The problem with this pinch and zoom approach to prophecy uh, is that high-res images are a terrible metaphor for actual prophecy. If you want a metaphor for what prophecy is really like, you could go back with me to the museum. Prophecy in Scripture is a lot more like Impressionist paintings. So Impressionist paintings, think of Manet and Monet and Renoir and Pizarro. Uh, these are images that are created stylistically to represent the subjective perception of the human eye. And when you look at an Impressionist painting, you realize not only are the objects in the painting sort of in relation to one another, like the distance between them is somehow created through this technical impression, but the artist somehow has to think about the distance of the viewer as well. So that an Impressionist painting, if you look at it from the right distance, appears to be exactly what it is. But if you go too close, you don't actually get more detail. What you get is abstraction. What you get is only a, a visual of the brushstroke and the technique. In other words, to see what it is, you have to be standing at the right distance. And I think that's a good way to think about prophecy. Because the prophecies that we can be absolutely certain about the details of their fulfillment are the ones that have already been fulfilled that New Testament authors tell us have been fulfilled. When we look at those prophecies where we can see beginning and end, we can see the whole picture, we can begin to understand how it is that God puts prophecy together. And it's important when you're interpreting prophecy to be standing at the right distance. Right? To interpret this kind of image correctly, you don't zoom in and peep at the pixels. You stand back and you admire that's how biblical prophecy seems to work. This is overstating radically, but in biblical prophecy, there's typically a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Something near, something far. 
but the way that they go together isn't easy. So it's not like uh, you'll read a prophetic passage and it'll be like verses 1 through 5 are the near fulfillment, and then picking up in verse 6 through 10, that's the ultimate fulfillment. Wouldn't that be nice? Instead, the near and the far, the, the immediate and the ultimate, are often right on top of each other and intertwined together. I'll give you an example. If you go to Isaiah, and you look in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, at the prophecies surrounding Emmanuel, the sign of Emmanuel, when that is given, is one of these near-fulfillment and far-fulfillment situations. If you go back and you read those famous passages that we quote from every Advent, you will find that some of the things that are mentioned there do not apply to Jesus. That some of the descriptions really don't fit Jesus. You think, well, that's weird. I wonder why that is. Well, why that is, is they're not referring to Jesus. They're talking about somebody else. If you go back and you read those prophecies in context, it's King Ahaz who receives the sign of the son who is coming, and some of the prophecies related to that son are fulfilled by the son who comes. He's a guy named Hezekiah, who you may have heard of. Some of that prophetic language is fulfilled in the birth and the life of Hezekiah, but a lot of it's not. If you go back and you read that stuff, in fact, if you'd read it in the days of Hezekiah and someone had said to you, well, Hezekiah is the fulfillment of this prophecy, you could have read that and said, I don't think so. Because there's a lot of stuff here that doesn't fit Hezekiah. Well, that's because it wasn't referring to Hezekiah. It was referring to the Messiah, to the king who would come, to Jesus Christ. But the problem is, when you go back and look, they're not divided easily. There aren't section headings letting you know which one points to which. They're on top of each other like that. And if you're in the details, if you're looking too closely, it's confusion. But when you look from the New Testament perspective and you look back from the right distance, you see how the promise has an immediate fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And again, this is simplifying things, but often that's the way prophecy works. And in the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus talks about the end of the temple and the end of the age, it definitely works that way that these are events that are sitting right on top of each other, but are actually separated by a distance of time. The disciples ask, when will these things be? Meaning, when will the things you just told us about be? The overthrow of the temple. When is that going to take place? And that's a straightforward question, and Jesus gives it a straightforward answer. This is the near fulfillment. This is going to happen soon. It's going to happen, Jesus is going to say, in this generation... Just as he promised in chapter 23 that the judgment he was talking about on the Pharisees and scribes would befall this generation, the destruction of the temple will happen in this generation. Jesus says to his disciples, there are people alive now who will be there to see this happen when this old order passes away and the new order of King Jesus comes in power, you will live to see this. That's the near fulfillment and it's easy for us to talk about that because it happened already. In AD 70, the Romans literally destroyed the temple. They fulfilled that aspect of the prophecy. 
But as you read the Olivet Discourse, you'll say, well, some of that fits the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Some of it doesn't. Well, that's because some of it's talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and some of it is talking about the later coming, the later judgment at the end of the age. That second question they ask, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That's a more complicated question because the disciples are putting all this stuff together that's actually more complicated. The sign of your coming? Well, which coming are you referring to? Right? They're not thinking of the second coming as we would understand it. They're thinking of, of, of when are you going to kind of reveal your power? When are you going to take your throne? What will be the sign of the end of the age? Well, when we hear the end of the age, we think of the, like the end of the world, like the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. But New Testament authors over and over again will refer to the days they're living in as the last days. And they're right because they are living in the end of that old age that comes to that final climax at the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So again, all of these things are on top of each other. They're interwoven. To some extent, we can take them out and separate them. We can say this refers to this, that refers to that. But not always. There will still be some mysteries. So as we attempt over the course of the next few weeks to dig into these things, uh, we're going to solve the mysteries we can solve, and we're going to acknowledge the mysteries that remain. But that does lead to one final question that would be a good one to end on, which is this. If biblical prophecy is this complex and complicated, then what's the point? If we want God to tell us what's going to happen, wouldn't it be nicer if he would just sort of lay it out, preferably with a chart? Why does he do it this way? What is the point of this? Right, talking about prophecy this way makes Jesus sound like one of those mystery novelists who does not give all of the clues the reader needs to solve it on their own. You know, the kind of book you read where when the detective reveals who the killer is, you're like, okay, well, now I get it. Now that you've told me all this stuff, I see how it makes sense. But there's no way in the world that I could have figured this out in advance. That's not fair. Right? Agatha Christie would never do this to me. She would have given me all the clues so that when the, the solution is revealed, I could just kick myself and say, well, I should have known already. Or if you're smarter... You could say, actually, I got there long ahead of you. And that's the way we think about prophecy. Prophecy is, is a mystery novel. And God, if he's going to be fair, needs to give us all the clues so the ones of us who are smarter can figure it out in advance. Obviously, these things are going to be mysterious to a lot of people, but those of us who are going to be scholars of prophecy, surely we should be able to apply ourselves to the clues and come up with the right answers. Otherwise, it's just not fair, because prophecy is a puzzle that we're meant to be able to figure out in advance. That's exactly wrong. That is a terrible metaphor for prophecy. A better one. And I promise the last one, the last metaphor for prophecy, at least in this sermon. Yeah, it's a mystery, but it's a different kind of mystery. 
Prophecy isn't the kind of mystery that if you pay enough attention to all the details and you watch all of the signs, then uh, when you find yourself at the pearly gates, standing in line to be admitted to heaven, and God is about to speak to you, and you say, hold on, hold on, and you pull out your little envelope, say, wait a second, you open up your tokens, and you say, I know, it was Colonel Mustard in the library with the wrench. I got there first. Now tell me what it was. No. It's a mystery, but it's a different kind of mystery. It's, it's more like the kind of mystery that leads to awe. It's the kind of mystery that humbles you. It's the kind of mystery that points you back to your reliance. It's the kind of mystery that creates in you a state of awareness. But the question is, awareness of what? What is the state of being that prophecy is meant to communicate. It's the need to stay awake and to be ready. G.C. Burkauer, in the book that I mentioned earlier, says the New Testament places such a strong emphasis on the Christians being ready at all times for the return of the Lord that one might wonder whether the whole essence of faith is summed up in the word watchfulness. That all of faith could be summed up as watchfulness. When Jesus comes and he confronts the old Levitical order down to its finest details, he sees in all of it like an arrow. It's meant to be pointing forward to him. But when the Messiah comes, that arrow pointing to him isn't paying attention at all. It isn't keeping watch. It isn't ready. It's asleep. It's abandoned. It's calling. It is corrupt. Now, we can't judge them for sleeping. The apostles themselves couldn't watch for one hour without sleeping. Left to our own strength, we couldn't either. That's just the point of prophecy, though. The point of prophecy is to show us that the course of history and human destiny has not been left to our own strength. When prophecy is fulfilled, we stand back in awe and we suddenly realize that the random events of our chaotic lives and the seemingly meaningless way that one thing happens and another doesn't, that that's not the reality, that that's just how it seems. The reality is that God is in control. God doesn't need to give us puzzles to solve. He doesn't need us to solve puzzles for him. His love for you, your security in him, does not depend on you solving anything. Instead, it's God who's working. It's God who uses the brush of history and the paint of human action to create his own vast awe-inspiring portrait of his powerful love. And at the center of that portrait is the cross. And you don't need a pinch and zoom in to see the, the, the grain in the wood or the rust on the nails. You just need to stand there and behold, the eyes open, watchful, and waiting. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.